The following podcast is from Tabernacle Baptist Church in Cartersville, Georgia. Thanks for listening. All right, well, if you have a copy of God's Word with you, and I hope you do, find your place in Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, and this morning we're going to look at verses 9 through 11. And this morning I'm preaching on the subject, why is Jesus so special? Why is Jesus so special? And the passage before us, Mark introduces his gospel account, but more so he introduces us to the person of Jesus. He does this by describing a a seminal event in Jesus' ministry, the baptism of Jesus. You can read of this same event in Matthew chapter 3, Luke chapter 3, and John chapter 1. All four gospel writers mention the account we're about to look at. That tells us that this is indeed an event of great significance. And here... Mark recounts the events surrounding Jesus' baptism in order to remind first century readers of the otherworldly special nature of our Lord. He demonstrates in just a few succinct words who Jesus is and he gives clues concerning what Jesus has done on our behalf. He shows us why Jesus is so important. Now, though these words were written a couple thousand years ago, they have meaning for us living here in the 21st century. It seems from our perspective, perhaps like never before, our country needs a reminder of who Jesus is. Our country needs a reminder of the help and the hope that's found in Jesus. People living in America and people living in this world Uh, need to hear of how Jesus has taken care of our biggest problem and of how he can deal with the issues that seem to beset us. See, many of our problems in society come from the fact that we have rose-tinted glasses and we expect too much out of the earth and we forget that this is a broken place, but there is a loving God who has given a remedy through his son, Jesus Christ. So we need to remember Jesus. We need to keep our eyes upon him so that the things of this world can grow strangely dim. When we understand who he is and what he's done, we'll have the purpose and the peace and the sense of belonging that the entire world seems to be desperately seeking after. We need to know who Jesus is. When I was in high school, I got my first job working at Kroger as a bag boy. And I worked at the Kroger in East Cobb near my home where I used to have the ice rink, the Park Air Shopping Center. I say it was my first real job because my dad had a cleaning business growing up, cleaning office buildings, and I started working with him at a young age, maybe Will's age. I was already going out some evenings and emptying trash and dust mopping floors with my dad. He, he, he said, if you go with me, I'll buy you a honey bun and a pack of baseball cards. And I didn't need to hear about child labor laws. That sounded like a deal. But I remember when I worked at Kroger, I liked working at Kroger because uh, near that location was the Atlanta Country Club. And 
many of the professional sports athletes in Atlanta lived in that neighborhood and would come and shop at that Kroger many times near closing time. They would come in late after the crowds had left. But one day in the middle of the day on a Saturday, Dikembe Mutombo, the center for the Atlanta Hawks, came in to get some groceries. Remember seeing his huge Mercedes parked on the curb right in front of the store and saw him coming through the line and he actually picked the line where I was bagging groceries and he wasn't hard to identify. He's a pretty big dude. And I, I knew this about the Kimbe Matumbo already because my brother and I would often go to Hawks games and, and followed the Hawks. I knew that he had a policy that he did not sign autographs. But since I bagged his groceries, I thought I would give it a shot. <laughs> and so I asked him, Mr. Matumbo, can I have your autograph? Now, I've, I've still got him. I thought before this morning, I said, I should have got him an attic and brought some of these with me. But you remember back in the day before you had all this digitized stuff for a, to, for a credit card transaction, they had this little swipe, swipe thing. They, they laid it on, then they had carbon paper, and they would make copies of your credit card as a backup to get the numbers. Well, I, I would just grab a, a sheet of those and one of those slips and ask whoever I was asking autograph. I've got Bobby Cox, Steve Avery, uh, Christian Leitner, others. I'd ask, could you give me your autograph? And Dikembe Mutombo paused for a moment and he said, sure, you bag my groceries. I'll give you an autograph. So I still have the autograph to this day. But when some of the other bag boys saw him signing autograph for me, they rushed and formed a line around him. They said, Mr. Mutombo can... We have your autograph. You remember he had a signature finger wag when he blocked his shot. And he said, no, no. Patrick bagged my groceries. I signed an autograph for Patrick. Well, I got his autograph. A little old lady was working that register. After all this had happened, she looked at me and said, who was that guy? <laughs> Dikembe Mutombo, the center for the Atlanta Hawks. She didn't know who he was. And get this many people in our world. This is why we do backyard vacation Bible school. This is why we go to the nations. This is why we place emphasis on missions here, there, and everywhere. Many people don't know who Jesus is. And we need to make the world aware he is special. And he has the answer for all of the questions that are out there. But furthermore, what about us believers? We may know him in salvation, but... I'm aware of this. Many times the things of this world beckon us to forget gospel realities about Jesus. And we need to remember that he is special. And Mark gives us this truth this morning. The question before, before us is, what makes Jesus so special? And I believe Mark answers that question by giving us three truths or three ideas concerning the nature of Jesus. Follow along with me. Number one, we see from our text that Jesus came to take care of our biggest problem. Mark chapter 1, verse 9, Jesus came to take care of our biggest problem. Mark says, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. By using his phrase, in those days, he's pointing back to the content of verses 1 through 8 where he spoke of the ministry of John the Baptist, that one who was foretold of in Malachi 4, 5, who would kind of come as a prophet to set the stage for Messiah's ministry. Mark wants us to be aware that that great preacher, John the Baptist, was not the Savior of the world. He simply came as a forerunner to introduce the Savior of the world. And he transitions with those words to remind us Jesus is the Savior, 
He says Jesus came and was baptized in the Jordan by John. I can still remember as a teenager when I was baptized, my pastor Johnny Hunt at First Baptist Woodstock baptized me. And I knew I needed to be baptized. I knew I was a sinner, understood the plan of salvation. I knew what baptism meant, and I knew I needed that. But as I read about Jesus here, if I'm honest, I have to ask the question, why did Jesus need to be baptized? He didn't have sin. He wasn't converted. He wasn't born again. He's not here joining the church. He's the perfect son of God. Why would he need to be baptized? I don't know about you, but I have questions like that sometimes when I read the Bible. Well, I'm in good company. John the Baptist himself in Matthew 3, 14, we learned there that he had the same question. He told Jesus when Jesus came to be baptized, I need to be baptized by you, yet you come to me. So we see it does indeed seem strange that Jesus would submit to this ritual since baptism normally involved a confession of one's sin. See that back in Mark chapter 1, verse 5. Look at what the Bible says there. Look at your Bible. It says the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to John the Baptist and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River confessing their sins. Now we know this, baptism doesn't save you. It is the act of repentance and faith that saves you, Mark 1, 15. Baptism, however, is the proper response after one has been saved. It's the first act of obedience in the Christian life. But it is indeed evidence that one has believed in the Lord and confessed their sins. We see here in Mark 1, 5. So why would Jesus be baptized? What's the deal? Well, I think it's important for us to note here and to understand that our Lord wasn't baptized as we would be baptized. He didn't baptize because he needed to confess sins. He baptized to show or to demonstrate that he had come to deal with our sins. Uh, by taking upon himself this posture of a candidate who needs to be baptized, D Jesus gave a great object lesson. He, he showed, he demonstrated, he proved that this was his mission in life to come and identify with sinners, to live for sinners, to die for sinners, and to be raised for sinners. You no, know, Jesus didn't need to be baptized because he was not a sinner. 1 Peter 2.22 tells us he did not commit sin and no deceit was found in him. So he was not baptized because he was a sinner, but he was baptized because we are sinners. And because the whole mission of his life was to take our place, to identify with our broken and sinful condition. His whole mission in life was to reverse the consequences of Adam and Eve's fall and to give us forgiveness and to give us new life and to make us pure and to restore us to our heavenly father, to bury our sins and to give us the ability to be raised to a new type of life. This is why Jesus was baptized. His baptism was all a great big object lesson demonstrating that he came to earth to take care of your problem and my problem. He touched down on planet earth to take care of all of this stuff we're seeing in the media, sickness and disease and death. He came to earth to seek and to save the lost. 
He came to deal with all of the confusion and corruption that's gripping human minds. He came to put away sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, Jesus became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Oh, so believer, get Mark's message this morning. See Jesus for who he is. He's not just some stern, austere, religious figure saying, you better follow me. No, he came to earth to take care of our biggest problem. And though you and I are both stained by sin, Jesus came to clean us of that sin. Though we are now marked and marred by life-dominating issues and struggles and attitudes and difficulties, Jesus came to erase our guilt and our condemnation and to give us life and wisdom from the Father. And this is who Jesus is. And this is what he does. Why is he so special? He came to deal with our biggest problem. But number two, I want you to see that Jesus, from Mark's word, we gather that Jesus, number two, can fix what is broken. And Jesus can fix what is broken. In Mark 1, 2, we read, as soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Now, I want you to notice, first of all, that Jesus came up out of the water. Now, Baptist preachers love that phrase. Jesus didn't wipe off the sprinkles. He came up out of the water. What does that mean? Well, it means he was under the water. So we see here that the language favors baptism by immersion. By the way, that word translated baptism is a Greek word, baptizo. It's actually not a translation, it's a transliteration. That means they took the original language and just put English letters with the word. Why did they do that when they originally translated the Bible in England? Well, there were so many differing views on what baptism is. And if you had the wrong view, you might get... So somebody was really clever and said, instead of saying dipped or immerse, let's just say baptize. That'll keep us out of trouble. The word really does mean baptize or immerse. Why is that important, Patrick? Because baptism was designed to be an act of professing one's faith. What's more, baptism was designed to be a great picture or symbol of the gospel. What happens when one is baptized? Well, his or her that person is buried underneath the water, Romans 6, 4, and then raised. What is the picture? It's a picture of how our old life is buried in Christ when we repent of our sins and believe in Jesus. And it's a picture of how when we are saved, we're raised to live a new type of life. So here Jesus comes up out of the water. And then he sees the heavens being torn open. Now let's not just read that with Sunday school eyes and think, yeah, heavens are torn open. That's, that's remarkable. No, this is aggressive language here. It's a word that was used of ripping a piece of fabric. There's undoubtedly a strange spectacle in the sky here. But what's more is that this was a divine sign. It was a miracle intended to dramatically capture the attention of people present. 
It was a fulfillment of prophecy, Isaiah 64.1. It was intended to show that this Jesus is indeed significant. He's a son of God. and He's come to do something big, something otherworldly. Now notice what happened after the skies are torn open, as if that's not a miracle big enough to capture attention. It says the spirit descended on him like a dove. Now again, let's not just read that like, okay, skies are tore open. What's next? Oh, a dove. I mean, this is big stuff. This is huge. And then I want you to notice, I want you to pay close attention to the language here, however. It says the spirit descended on him like a dove. Now I brought a dove with me this morning. Could you guys open the back door so that it can fly out when I release it? No, just kidding. We're not doing that. I, I did the best I could do. I brought a dove this morning. There's my dove. I, I asked our staff to get me a dove for my sermon. I was hoping for a good old gray morning dove, but we got a white one with pearls on its nose nonetheless. Okay. So this is my dove. Everybody say hi, dove. My kids, when they name their stuffed animals, they give them, their name is whatever type of animal it is, plus a Y on the end. And then for the first name, it's the color of what the animal is. So this is White Dovey. Everybody say, hi, White Dovey. All right. So you see this physical form here in front of us. I want you to notice something, uh, and if we have any English teachers in here, you could help us with this. Notice it says the spirit descended on him like a dove. Now, I still remember from English class in high school getting this beaten in my head. I still remember learning about a simile using like or as to make a comparison. All right, some of us forgot about English class. That's all right. Notice that Mark here uses a comparison. He's not saying it is a dove. He's saying it's like a dove. Luke draws attention to the same reality when he says the Holy Spirit, speaking of the same account, descended on Jesus in a physical appearance like a dove. So what are Mark and Luke telling us? There, the Holy Spirit, not a literal dove, came upon Jesus, but the best way they could describe it is it looked like a dove lighting upon him, resting upon him. Now, this is significant here. Uh, what's to be in view is not a dove. What's to be in view and what's to capture our attention is the Holy Spirit. Let's focus not on the bird. Let's focus on the third person of the Trinity. Oh, why is this important? Well, because in the Old Testament mindset, the Spirit came upon people for special acts of service. The Spirit descended upon God's choice servants who were sent to liberate or deliver God's people. Gideon in Judges 6.34, Samson in Judges 13.6, Saul in 1 Samuel 10.10, and David in 1 Samuel 16.13 are all examples of men being raised up in the midst of God's people to bring deliverance to God's people and to build the Lord's kingdom. So Jews in the presence, when they heard that the Spirit had come upon Jesus, they got the message, this guy has come to deliver us. And Jesus prophesied of himself in Luke 4, 18 and said that this was true. 
He applied Isaiah 61, that great prophecy, Isaiah 61.1 to himself, where the anointed one is depicted as saying, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. And here we see, mark it down, the Spirit of the living God is on Jesus. Now this is important for several reasons. One of them is here we see proof of the Trinity, that miracle of miracles in Christian theology that makes Christianity different from other world religions. God is three in one. But we also see in this reference to the Spirit an indicator to Jesus' mission in life. We see here an explanation of why Jesus came to earth. For Mark's first century readers, one could perhaps not help but read this account if they were of a Jewish background and think back to Genesis chapter 1. Have you ever paid attention to Genesis chapter 1? We know verse 1, don't we? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But have you ever paid attention to verse 2? Some people say, I don't know if I can believe in this idea that there's a trinity. I don't really see it throughout the Bible. Well, you see it right here in Mark. But you also see it in the very first chapter of the Bible. In the beginning, God, God the Father, created the heavens and the earth. But if you go to verse 2, the Bible goes on to explain, Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. And then listen, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. The very beginning of time, God was there. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That's why the Lord would say in Genesis 1:26, let us make man in our own image. Why did God say that? Does he have some schizophrenic multi-personality problem? No, he's God, three in one. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Spirit was there at the beginning of time hovering over the waters. And here Mark depicts the Spirit of God hovering over Jesus. He gives a clear allusion to the beginning of time. He makes an unmistakable reference to what life was like before sin entered into the human equation. And in doing so, he points to the purpose of Jesus coming to earth. Why did Jesus come and live and die on our behalf? He wants to get humankind back to the beginning. He wants to return the human condition to what life was like before sin and the fall. Oh, hear it, church. Your salvation is good for the here and now, but it ultimately involves a hereafter where there will be no more sin or suffering. No more pain or problems. No more confusion or corruption. No more war and no more grief. All of human history is heading to a new heaven and a new earth. Garden of Eden, part two, where Jesus makes all things new. And this spirit hovering over him at his baptism is a reminder of this great and glorious truth. Jesus came for these purposes. So don't let your hearts be troubled by a pandemic. Don't let your hearts be troubled by rioting. Don't let your hearts be troubled by your grief. 
Don't let your heart unnecessarily be troubled by your sin and your shortcomings. Look to Jesus who has come to fix what is broken. Don't let your hope be found in all of the endless debates and arguments of corrupt and fallen people. Put your hope in Jesus and have your feet standing firm on the solid rock of Christ and his gospel. You can fix what is broken. The other day I got home from work. It was the end of the week, work week for me, and I was looking forward to unplugging for the afternoon. I hit the garage door opener, and before I even had my park, car parked in the garage, one of the children was waiting for me. Had one of his toys in his hand. I was looking forward to doing nothing for a couple days. He had a, he had a daddy-do list already. Daddy, this broke. Do you think you can fix it? I looked at it, two pieces of broken plastic. I don't know if they think I'm like a miracle worker, like I'll lick my hand and fuse plastic back together. There you go. Remember several years back, the boys had all got the the idea one day that they were going to have a war between some of their stuffed animals and the ones that lost, lost their heads. They went to decapitating stuffed animals. They got kind of bored. These stuffed animals are like, man, I didn't know we signed up for the Al-Qaeda family. Good grief. <laughs> so I get home, and they're bringing these stuffed animals to me with their heads missing. Hey, Daddy, can you fix this? No, I'm not a seamstress. I can't put their heads back on. But, you know, I often walked away from those encounters and felt... Um, Kind of humbled that my boys actually believe I can fix anything. This made me think sometimes of the posture we ought to have to our Heavenly Father. That we ought to have this ever-present awareness of how great and glorious He is. We ought to be gripped by what Jesus has done for us. And whenever we face pain or hurt or dissension or grief in life, we should be ready to run to our Heavenly Father and say, Lord, can you fix this? We've got to keep an awareness of who Jesus is. He's special, folks. He's a lily of the valley. He came to take care of our biggest problem. He came to fix what is broken. But number three, I want to leave us with this. Jesus can make us a part of God's family. You can say this with boldness. Jesus can make me a part of God's family. Look what happens in verse 11. A voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. For Jews in presence that day, this was undoubtedly a great sign. A voice from heaven. They would have interpreted it as being the voice of Yahweh. And we likewise can say it's the voice of Jehovah, Yahweh. It is the voice of the heavenly Father. We see the Trinity here. Jesus in the water. The Holy Spirit descending upon him. God the Father speaking from heaven. He says, you are my beloved son. At night when I go in to tuck the boys sometimes, I might put, put them kind of in a little headlock and kiss their head and say, you know you're my boy, don't you? And I'll say, I know you're my bo- I'm your boy. And the Lord here is maybe uh, giving a similar yet more grandiose and glorious sign of approval to his son. 
He's acknowledging that Jesus is not just a man. He's not just a teacher. He's not just a rabbi. He's not just another zealot religious leader. He is the son of God, the one ordained since eternity past to come as the mediator, the go-between, the substitute to bring salvation, to defeat sin, to defeat Satan forever. He is the fulfillment of all of the prophecies and he is the fulfillment of messianic psalms like Psalm 2-7 where the psalmist said, I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I've become your father. The Lord's giving his approval the son Jesus. The language expresses an eternal, abiding, consistent, forever relationship by saying, you are my son, there is permanence in the language. He's saying this is a reality. It's been a reality, Colossians 1.16, since the beginning of time, and it will never change. Jesus, you are my son. John 17.21, Jesus is with God from the beginning. The Spirit was there as well, and all three are one. And here, Mark shows us that Jesus was divine, 100% God, 100% man. He gave the same truth at the beginning of his gospel. Don't let anybody ever tell you the Bible doesn't claim Jesus was God or that Jesus never claimed he was God. The very beginning of his gospel, Mark 1, started. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Is it really important that he was God? Can we just say we're following another man and other people happen to follow other men? This is a good idea or a good metaphor, as Jack Johnson would say, to help us interpret our reality? No, that won't suffice. That won't cut it because if Jesus wasn't God, he wasn't perfect. And if he wasn't perfect, he's got no way to help imperfect people. So Jesus here is the son of God. And he's perfect. And what's more is this idea that he came to give us a place and a part in God's family. Because he was the son of God, he can make you a son of God. Oh, you get the meaning here in Mark's words. And Jesus came as the son of God to bring many sons to glory. He came not to raise up followers or church members or people who agreed with his ideology. No, he came to birth a new spiritual family to live with him and God the Father and the Holy Spirit forever and ever. This is at the core of Christian theology. The Lord, when he saves us as Christians... It's not just the idea of us signing our name on a list and saying, okay, I'm a Christian. No, it is that the very God who spoke the earth into existence speaks new life into us and births us, births us anew through his Holy Spirit. We become his children for all of eternity. Paul spoke of this in Ephesians 1, 5 through 6. when He said he predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ, for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious name that he lavished on us, listen, in the beloved one. Ephesians 1, 15 through 16. 
I find it unique there in that passage, Ephesians 1, 5 through 6, excuse me, that Paul speaks of our adoption, but in doing so, he refers to Jesus as the beloved one. He uses the very same title we see here in Mark 1, 11. And he uses that title to remind us because Jesus was the beloved son of God, as we see here in Mark 1.11, we have the opportunity to be beloved, adopted, accepted, cherished children forever and ever. Because of what Jesus has done, there is a sense in which the very words of the Lord here concerning Jesus can now be spoken over us. If you've been born again, you're a child of the king. And right now, there's no condemnation hanging over your life. There's no one who can say you're not good enough, you can't cut it. There's no wrath hanging over your life. Your future is rosy and awesome in the Lord. When the Lord looks at you, he sees you as having his genes and his DNA. You're one of his children. He loves you, but he doesn't just love you. He fully accepts you, and he is, as he was with Jesus, well-pleased in you. Because of Calvary, when he looks at you, he sees not your sin, your shortcomings, your past, or your failures. Instead, he sees the righteousness of his son, Jesus. The cross, your sins have been canceled. Your past has been dealt with. And your future is secure. Paradise will be yours. This is what Jesus has done for us. He's made us a part of his family. And now, as Paul said in Romans 8, his spirit's within us crying, Abba, Father. And we live life with this relationship. No matter what problems and pains may come our way, No matter what people may come against us, we can cry, Abba, Father, and we know he hears us and he will lead us throughout our journey here on earth all the way up until we enter in to the new heaven and the new earth. So we have hope and help, steadfastness and strength in the person of Jesus. What we just need is faith to hold on to all of these promises. Well, we've got to stay solid with an ever, ever-present mindset of who Jesus is and why he's so special. Get what Mark's saying. He's special because he came to take care of our biggest problem. He's special because he can fix what is broken. And he's special because he's made us a part of his family. Uh, This morning I got up and just let y'all know, you know, with all of this at times, I'm just human. So with all these things going on, I've been a little bit overwhelmed at time and trying to do the best I can and seeking the Lord and seeking advice. And, you know, it's weird. I'm excited to be back here. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, I got like in a little new habit of nine weeks, I think, of just coming in here right before 1030 and preaching and going home. Right. Now I start thinking, wow, three times preaching today, and I don't know what we're going to face or encounter, don't know how it's going to go. I woke up this morning, and I had worked a lot in the yard yesterday and went for a long run. When I woke up this morning, 
My body was hurting a little bit from that run and working out. And I'm thinking, wow, preaching three times and we don't know what's going to happen, what it's going to be like, how people are going to receive what we're doing. As, as I was getting ready, I started to get a little bit negative. And then the Lord gave me grace just to check myself and to remind myself of who I am in Christ and that I'm his child. And that he's not holding any unrealistic expectations over me. He knows who I am. He knows what I need. And he's got the ability to show up at church in the midst of all of this and bless you all and build you up and take what I offer and give you what you need spiritually. He's in control. He is good and he is great. And one day all this mess is going to end and we're going to be around the feet of Jesus forever in a perfect place that Jesus called paradise. Just a few moments of preaching myself that to myself, I was ready to go. What a great reminder. We got to be able to do what Mark here, I believe, is encouraging us to do. To remember who Jesus is. For more information, visit us online at tabernaclebaptist.org. Thanks for listening.